Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Shadows. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. Fantastic show coming up for you tonight on BTS. We are going to be talking ghost ships, all those uh, weird, creepy, nautical adventures. <laughs> so, but uh, before we get into all of that, I want to let you know that this episode of Beyond the Shadows is brought to you by a haunted road roast. It helps you hunt ghosts. That's right. All right, so here we are on Beyond the Shadows. I know Edge of the Rabbit Hole earlier this evening. We had a couple of great guests, uh, Dr. David Bettenhausen and Carla Bogney-Kid. And I know we had all kinds of crazy technical difficulties with that. I do apologize. I, the new computer still uh, getting it, you know, everything kind of, uh, I guess, all the, the bumps ironed out or what have you uh, with the with the software that I use and, you know, connecting everything up and all that crazy stuff. So, you know, it, it might be a couple of weeks before we have it all ironed out. It's the reason why we did not have a beyond the shadows on the YouTube channel last week was because it took me a while to get all of that set up. And so I do apologize for those difficulties earlier today. Hopefully this will go a little bit smoother and uh, we'll roll from here, but uh, appreciate everybody's patience. And um, if you have not yet, by all means, out here at the Edge of the Rabbit Hole YouTube channel, please go ahead and subscribe because we do have fantastic guests every week. And, of course, don't forget to hop over there to the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel as well because tonight's discussion is based off of last week's video. In part, we will get to uh, a number of those stories. We did a Ghost Ships video last week on the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel. Of course, that was the... Uh, Kind of the tip of the iceberg there. We're going to have a bit of a deeper dive here. That's kind of the way we've been doing it here for, for a while. So, all right, let's get into a ghost ships. And really kind of um, where this stuff starts, you got to go back into ancient history. So, um, you know, really just as far as, uh, you know, some context, you know, when we're talking about uh, ghost ships, really what we're talking about are those reports of strange phenomena, supernatural activity out on the open water. And these go back, uh, again, you know, millennia. So, you know, basically what we're looking at here, and I know those on the podcast won't be able to see this, but on the YouTube channel, you know, we're looking at a uh, painting, a depiction of the siren. So, um, you know, we go back into ancient mythology and, you know, we see some of this uh, interesting activity out on uh, the open seas. And, you know, this is a, a, basically a depiction of, um, you know, Greek myth. So sirens were considered dangerous creatures that would lure sailors uh, basically to rocks and rough terrain, reefs, what have you, to destroy their ships by using their enchanting music and voices uh, to, to basically wreck the ship. So uh, the, the painting here is supposed to be Odysseus being bound to the mast of his ship, so... Uh, so that he could resist their song. And he basically asked the sailors uh, to do that for him uh, so that he wouldn't succumb, and thus they could be uh, saved. And this is a, uh, a mosaic of, of basically the same story. Uh, so now, originally, sirens were uh, male or female, but um, the male version of the sirens went by the wayside. And, um, you know, around, I guess around the 5th, century bc it uh the sirens almost exclusively became female in nature so even you know evolution of the stories we've talked uh, you know many many times before on this channel about uh you know myth and legend how it evolves over time and you know somewhere along the way there was some grain of truth in it evolved into these stories but they they do change over time so you can even see there the idea of, you know, the siren being one or the other, male or female, and then developing into, uh, you know, just the female. And then we see other uh, types of, uh, you know, supernatural type creatures that are, you know, that come out in myth and legend later on as well, like you get into mermaids and, um, you know, even when you get into, you know, creatures like the Kraken and, and things like that, um, you have all of these you know, types of beings, you know, within the scene. You can even get into, um, you know, some of the, 
you know, different gods that uh, that rule the sea as well. So uh, we're not going to get into all of that. We want to get into the uh, you know the different ghost ships. But basically, you know, it was stories like this from you know, way back in mythology that was their kind of way of explaining why you had some of this supernatural activity happening out in the open seas when you have these different entities like the sirens and what have you that are out there that can possibly create this activity that people are witnessing and experiencing you know why are you know some ships mysteriously drawn to the rocks and crash into the rocks well it was the sirens so um, so we get our start there as we move on, so this was a uh, this was one of the requests out of the Mike Ricksecker Facebook group, and I do appreciate all those who uh, chimed in on that thread. Uh, you guys uh, did ask for some uh, some interesting stories, so that was part of this as well. Was that um, out there on the Mike Ricksecker Facebook group? I, I threw out there, okay, what are you know some of your favorite. Uh, haunted stories or supernatural activity that happens out on uh, the open waters. And so this one here, we'll get back to it. This is the Flying Dutchman. Um, I think this is the one I wanted, though. That's only showing the one. Interesting. Okay, well, another technical glitch. It's only showing the one photo. So I had the original painting, and this is another artist's uh, interpretation. But in any case... So the Flying Dutchman, and we're not talking about the uh, the one from the Disney movie <laughs> from Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, we're talking about the legendary uh, Dutch ghost ship, which we don't know if there really was an actual um, Flying Dutchman ship, uh, but basically it's a you know a myth out of the uh, 17th century, kind of inspired by the uh, Dutch East India Company. And so, uh, according to legend, if uh, if the Flying Dutchman, if it was seen, it was hailed by another ship, uh, then the crew of the Flying Dutchman would try to send uh, messages to land or to people long dead. So there's a lot of interesting stories uh, surrounding the Flying Dutchman. Uh, there are purported sightings in the 19th and 20th centuries as well. Um, that basically claimed that ship glowed with a ghostly light and it was seen out on uh, you know the deep oceans and what have you and of course um, you know the this is supposed to be a um, uh, basically signaling doom like if you see the flying Dutchman then of course something uh, terrible is about to happen to your own ship but even with that, the the Dutchman stories you know, evolved over time, and we we see this. You know, we already talked a little bit about it with the uh, with the sirens, but even with you know the Flying Dutchman and others, as we go along, you'll start to see how the stories evolve. It's kind of something we always talk about again when it comes to myth, legend, urban legends, and how we have you know some grain of truth in the stories compound on top, but you can try to find uh, what those pieces of truth may end up being. So uh, with the Dutchman, so the, the first print reference to the ship was in travels in various parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa during a series of 30 years and upward uh, from 1790 by John McDonald. So uh, the story of the Flying Dutchman does go as far back as that. Um, and I'm just going to read this little bit to you that was written by John McDonald back then. Um, it says, the weather was so stormy that the sailors said they saw the Flying Dutchman. The common story is that the Dutchman came to the Cape in distress of weather and wanted to get into harbor, but could not get a pilot to conduct her and was lost, and that ever since, in very bad weather, her vision appears. So, again, it's a, uh, you know, a ship that's met some sort of nasty ending, now a ghost ship and appears to other vessels in uh, in times when they are experiencing the same type of uh, terrible situations. Um, so as far as the Flying Dutchman being a pirate ship, this actually came about later on. Uh, Sir Walter Scott uh, added to that mythology, and he was the first one to actually uh, refer to the Flying Dutchman as a pirate ship. Of course, as the years go on, and the stories get compiled. Now it's pretty much considered a pirate ship, 
rather than the original. It, it seems more like the original stories were more of a merchant ship gets changed into a pirate ship, and now in our modern times, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean picks it up, and you know, the Flying Dutchman is you know, also part of Davy Jones' locker, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I mean, that's all good fun. That's all good fun. Um, all right. So, moving on, and by all means, you guys have any uh, questions or interesting comments, please go ahead and throw them down in the chat. Always appreciated. Um, and, uh, all right. So, the Mary Celeste was another one that you guys were looking for more information about, and I did cover this one in the Haunted Road Media video. So, Mary Celeste, and this goes back in uh, to 1872. This one was a merchant ship. And what was crazy about this, you know, it, it left out of New York with, um, it had a, basically a family aboard, uh, uh, husband, wife, a uh, couple of children, or actually it was one child, she was two, and then there were eight crew members. However, weeks later, the Mary Celeste was discovered and nobody was aboard. And what's crazy about this is that um, it looked like the inhabitants of the Mary Celeste just decided to get off the boat one day. So the uh, the one lifeboat was gone. Um, the captain's papers were taken, but everything else on board was pretty much in order. So there was no signs of a struggle or anything like that. It kind of rules out pirates. Um there was no evidence of anything like they were in the middle of making a meal or like meal was a meal was set or anything like that. So they didn't, it, it didn't seem like they left in an emergency. You know, everything, like I said, was pretty much in order. They left some different valuables on board. Um, so things that you would think that they would try to take, you know, very quickly or whatever, that was all there. It, it just seems like they made some sort of orderly exit off of the boat. And when these guys found it, it's just kind of, you know, derelict in the water. They tried to uh, go ahead and hail it. Of course, when they hailed it, they didn't get any response. So then they approached it and discovered that, um, you know, that it was abandoned. And so there was, uh, they did find the ship's log. And there was just a simple entry there of uh, at, at 8 a.m., nine days uh, before the the ship was actually discovered and it was just, you know, just a benign entry. There was you know, nothing significant, no information about it. So, uh, several theories that, uh, about the Mary Celeste that may have, uh, the people think may have happened. So there, there's an insurance scam that may have gone wrong is one, uh, dubious murder plot, several natural phenomenon theories like icebergs, sea quakes. There's even a theory of a, uh, like sea monsters, like a giant squid. Uh, of course, people uh, also relate mystical experiences to it that are connected with the Giza pyramids and Atlantis. So all kinds of, uh, you know, different, interesting, you might even say crazy theories about what may have actually happened to this ghost ship. But as absolutely a ghost ship because uh, you know, it was just found abandoned, nobody on board and we have yet to discover what happened to those who were aboard now as far as the mary celeste itself um nobody wanted it after that it, it just kind of sat in the harbor there for a while you know basically it was salvaged and uh attempted to be resold and it just sat around for years and years and years everybody was scared of the ghost ship um you know finally it was bought and was actually used in an insurance scam, and it was purposely sunk uh, to, and the the claim was made that it had more cargo aboard than what was actually there, and so that was the, the insurance scam with it. Um, so, unfortunately, the Mary Celeste, of course, is no more. It's at the bottom of the ocean, and in recent times, they have actually found the remnants of the Mary Celeste down at the bottom of the ocean. So uh, divers have gone down there. 
That is the Mary Celeste. There uh, is a question that has come in. A couple questions here. So, all right. So, Alina the Fam, if there are ghost ships and ghost cars, has anyone seen ghost planes? Oh, yeah. There, there could certainly be ghost planes. Um, you know, you, you think about some of these UFO sightings uh, that some of these airline pilots see. Some of those could actually be ghost airplanes. Um, I cannot think of a story off the top of my head as far as ghost planes. Sorry, not prepped for for that. But uh, yeah, any of these type of vehicular um, you know, phenomenon, uh, you know, ghost trains you hear about sometimes. So um, yeah, planes uh, can definitely be ghostly in nature as well. Uh, I mean, basically, it's just it's it's another residual haunt for the most part. Um, I, I, you know, I would have a hard, Oh, hard time, uh, seeing an, an intelligent haunt of a plane. But again, the question would be, what would kick it off? Um, of course, that's a little bit different. Ghost plane would be a little bit different than saying a historic plane that is haunted. I've been in a historic plane that is haunted. Um, an old World War II airplane at uh, the old hangar in uh, Frederick, Oklahoma. They have a, uh, a World War II uh, flight, uh, or what do they call it? Um, basically, the, the parachute, the, the, the paratroopers. Um, it's kind of like an old World War II flight school. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the specific name offhand, but in any case, uh, they have a hangar there with a couple of airplanes that uh, the one actually saw action in World War II, and that one specifically uh, that did see action uh, actually is haunted, and we did interact with the navigator on there. Um, Nick Graves, I wonder if divers have seen ghosts in sunken ships. I'd imagine uh, it's had to have happened. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my, free, my friend Lee Ehrlich, uh, he lives down in uh, Cape Coral, Florida, um, he uh, runs Ghost Pros, and I think he still has his Paranormal Divers website up as well. But in any case, uh, he's been on a couple of the shows and, and what have you. Uh, and one of the things that he does, he's a uh, he's a world class diver. He's done a, like a lot of deep sea salvage, and he also um, helps out when crazy things like cars you know, <laughs> go into like uh, you know into deep water and whatnot. Help out with that stuff. Um, but in any case, yeah, he's gone down to old sunken ships, and he has witnessed uh, paranormal activity down there quite a bit. Um, it's it's interesting. The the EVP actually we'll get to the EVPs in a little bit. So you know he'll see down there like ghost lights. You know he has seen apparitions and whatnot. Uh, underwater EVPs are a little oh, kind of interesting because again you're underwater. However. Uh, with his experience with the water, we have a video out there on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel called Voices of Mineral Springs. This is at the Mineral Springs Hotel, Alton, Illinois. And uh, Lee was out there with us one time, and well, he's been out there a couple times. But the one specific investigation, uh, he was teaching us how he's able to get EVPs off the water. So uh, Mineral Springs, in the um, some of you have been there off the grand ballroom, down the hall, uh, near the antique shop, there's this fountain. So if you go back down that hall a little bit, you can't be right next to me. You need to be down the hall a little bit, and you start listening to the lup, 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 lup of the water. You can actually hear the voices off the water, and we're we're sitting there. It's, it's interesting because it's not really EVP. Uh, we're hearing disembodied voices. So you watch the video and um, we're asking questions like, okay, where are you from? You hear St. Louis. This is off the water. You know, how old are you? And I'm like, I hear 33 And you know, the, the EVP that comes back or the disembodied voice that comes back off the water, 33. So um, yeah, you, you can absolutely get paranormal uh, and supernatural activity down in the water, down in these old shipwrecks. And you can actually use the water to actually pick up, uh, spirit voices. So uh, very, very interesting stuff. Uh, of course, we talk a lot about how uh, water is a conductor for that paranormal supernatural activity as well. 
Um, and of course, what's great about a place like Mineral Springs, you got the limestone bluffs that are right there. And then the uh, in, in the basement of that hotel, the old Mineral Spring is still down there. And it's basically like a hole that goes into the ground. They've filled it in with like a bunch of junk, which is kind of like sinking, sinking, sinking back into um, back into the ground. So there's still this like gaping hole that's down there. Uh, very, very interesting location. Uh, I'll be back there soon, actually. So, all right. Sarah Youssef, uh, Mike, see people tend to be a superstitious bunch in the first place. Could have been a result of that. Um, oh, as far as the Mary Celeste being abandoned? I mean, yeah, they, they could have gotten superstitious of something that they saw out on the open water. Uh, we don't know what they may have sought. Um, you know, there could have been some sort of phenomenon going on out there and you know they could have been like a bad omen and they just decided to get into the boat and and leave and they could have even been something that they weren't intending to you know completely abandon ship they may have been just going into the lifeboat temporarily and then something happened where you know they lost track of the mary celeste itself um, I think one of the theories specifically is is that that um, they were possibly because they don't know for sure that it may have possibly been encroaching a reef and they got into the lifeboat in case the Mary Celeste itself hit that reef. And then if it didn't, of course, they'd get back on. But while they were doing that, while they were in the lifeboat, the winds changed and then all of a sudden, the Mary Celeste itself took off on them, and they're stuck in the little lifeboat and can't catch up to the Mary Celeste. So it's a theory that's out there. Uh, there is absolutely no way to know for sure. Um, you know, those, un unfortunately, the, uh, the family and those uh, eight crew members are, are probably at the bottom of the ocean somewhere. And, you know, if you're talking the middle of the Atlantic, yeah, that's some deep ocean out there. So, um we're probably never going to know. And even if somehow, some way they're ever found, we're still not going to know why. Um, all right. So, um, so Alina, the fam, what about ghost motorcycles? Yep, absolutely. Ghost motorcycles do happen. Um, in fact, about this time last year, I put a video out on the Hunter road media YouTube channel about the, uh, headless rider so it's a uh, motorcycle story that's uh here in the uh northern ohio area actually closer to uh toledo near elmore and uh, i don't want to get too deep into that because they're supposed to be doing ghost ships but basically um it's supposed to be every year um on the anniversary the headless rider is supposed to come back but um the, the story is tragic a uh, guy from world war one uh, comes home, the the girl that he's been writing this entire time uh, has taken up with, with someone else, and he witnesses this, and then he rides off in this motorcycle in the night and basically wipes out on this bridge and loses his head. So this, the bridge is supposed to be extremely haunted. Uh, Tom McNicholas, what about the ghost story in the movie The Fog? Was it based on a true story? Um, good question. I saw I saw the the fog once like years ago. So Tom, I can't actually address that right now because I don't recall the story hand, uh, the story off the top of my head. Um, I would have to go back and watch it and, and look that up. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Sorry, buddy. Um, okay, Victoria, Victoria Monday, Ghosts of Flight Four Hundred One. Salvaged parts from Four Hundred One uh, were put on other planes, and there were accidents and hauntings associated with the salvaged parts. Well, yeah, and that um, that is, you know, a uh, interesting aspect about okay, using parts from uh, previous previous ships. Um, we'll get back to the ghost ships, using parts from previous ships. So. Um, Oh, geez, the name of it, uh, Baltimore Inner Harbor, the Constellation. There we go. USS Constellation. So what's interesting about that, um, so that ship there, extremely haunted. Um, people talk about the powder monkey, the little boy uh, 
who died on there that's running around, uh, several others. And what's interesting about that ship is it's not actually the original ship itself. It's the second USS Constellation, but um, it seems that the hauntings that were associated with the first one came over to the second one. Um, and as far as I know, there are no, uh, no parts associated with it. Uh, from the old one, it's, it's a brand new original ship from, I mean, they, they were both very old ships, but, uh, the second one didn't have anything from the first, but yet was christened in honor of the other. And yet you have all the hauntings from the first that are there with it. So did those spirits associate themselves, you know, that had been with the, with the original ship, did they somehow associate themselves with the new ship because it was built in honor of the former? So kind of interesting things like that. All right, the Bechimo. All right, so this one was featured in the Alaska Triangle, the show that I was on uh, earlier this year. And uh, it's a really interesting story, kind of bizarre. And basically what happened here, so uh, this ship, you know, it, it dates back to 1914. Um, it's a basically a, a cargo steamer, uh, but it, it became known as Alaska's ghost ship after, in 1931, it basically became abandoned. Uh, basically, it kept, it kept hitting the ice. It kept getting impacted into the ice and um, it, it just would get stuck. It would get, um, you know, dis it would get lodged in the ice. And so this would cause them to have to abandon the ship for a while and take up residence. Uh, like this happened near Barrow. And so they stayed a couple of nights in Barrow. And then while they were staying, uh, there, it all of a sudden became dislodged and it started floating away. So they they followed it. They they tracked it down. They would talk to some of the local uh, Inuits, uh, some of the Native Alaskans, and then they would refine it. Well, it became lodged in the ice again. Uh, and you can see here, you know, these poor guys are they're taking supplies off in one of the uh, the little lifeboats, and. You know, they had very valuable cargo on there. It was like a million dollars worth of furs, and so they didn't want to lose this thing. And so the the one night they end up, um, or a couple of nights, because it had been lodged in the ice again, they set up like a little tent city around there, but they got uh, uh, basically a, a nasty blizzard uh, hammered them, and they were kind of stuck there. But the storm dislodged the Pichamo again, and off it went again. And so this kept happening over and over and over and what they ended up doing was just completely abandoned once they were able to catch up to it again uh it was getting damaged hitting the ice and they were like this is just not going to last the winter so we just have to we have to give up on the beachimo so they were able to get all the furs off of there and there the beachimo went off again but they were wrong it, it lasted far more than the winter it lasted at least 38 years so the last time it was actually seen was in 1969. Nobody knows what happened to it after that, but they called it Alaska's ghost ship because um, you know, it, it would appear out of nowhere and you know they would see it floating along. Hey, there's the Bay Chimo. And people would go and they they would try to board it and they would try to salvage it and they they would always have they would always have issues. They would always have problems trying to do this um, during this this span of 38 years. And it would go floating off again into the mist. And so this happens, you know, again and again and again, where it would just seemingly show up out of nowhere. And then as soon as they had seen it, it would disappear again. Uh, again, the last time it was seen was 1969. Nobody knows what happened to it, whether it actually sunk or if it's perhaps still floating out there somewhere. And it just it hasn't been seen since then. So um, very, very interesting and bizarre phenomena of uh, of this ship uh, derelict you know floating around the, the waters of Alaska for for decades almost 40 years at least so and we just we just don't know how long it actually did survive so um, 
I was getting back to some questions when everything kind of died again last time. So let's get to uh, a couple. There are a couple other questions here. Um, that's an interesting question, Alina. Has there ever been a train accident because of an appearance of a ghost one? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So um, I'd have to look that one up. But, um, yeah, I mean, things like that could happen. You hear, you at least hear of that with, like, ghost cars, where, you know, a car's going down the road, and, you know, they, they see the headlights of, of an oncoming car, and they swerve off the road, but there was no car. So you'll hear about things like that. Uh, so could it possibly happen with things like trains or ships or planes? I would, I would imagine so that that does happen to some degree. So... All right, um, let's move on to the uh, the next here. This is also an Alaska story. Uh, that was the wrong tab again. All right, so this is the uh, SS Princess Sophia. Uh, this one's a really tragic uh, tale here where uh, this goes back to 1918, October, like right around now in October in uh, for those of you familiar with Alaska, um, yeah, it's already snowing in, in October. When I was stationed up there, I arrived on November 1st, and there was um, probably a good foot and a half of snow already on the ground. So they're taking off, and they got started late. Um, and so a lot of people end up blaming the captain that he was trying to make up for lost time, which is, which is sad. But basically what happened here, 364 people were aboard this ship, and the only survivor of this tragedy was a English setter dog. So it was, uh, again, it was a passenger liner headed out of Skagway, Alaska, en route to Juneau. And as it was navigating uh, the Lynn Canal, the ship got hung up on the Vanderbilt Reef. Um, the way the Alaska Triangle comes into play with this is... Um, you know, captain Locke was a very uh, skilled captain. He had sailed this route countless, countless times. So how did he get veered so far off course? Because he was like at least, a, uh, what was it, like a mile, mile and a half off course or, or something to that effect. Uh, he, was, he was far off course. And here's, here's the reef. So they got hung up on the reef, and there was it started storming so there was a very nasty snowstorm now they did they did radio for help um and uh people from juno did come out to help in other boats um the uh captain of the uss cedars captain ledbetter and he had stated that he had never observed conditions that would have allowed for the evacuation of the princess sophia um any time that they were, you know, trying to get close and, and perhaps help out, Captain Locke would tell them to go ahead and get back because he's observing the conditions. And, and because of, you can kind of see in this photo uh, the waves, and I'm sorry, those in the podcast can't see the photo, but you can see the waves crashing against the boat and the reef. And I, I only have this one here. There are several others. If you watch the video on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel, you can see, you know, how, how big some of those waves were getting. And so the fear was that if you were to try to uh, load some people into some rescue boats or if you had people coming to uh, the Sophia to try to help out, then those boats were just going to either crash into the reef or crash into the boat, and uh, those people would perish. So they were trying to wait for, um, you know, for better weather, for the storm to clear up. Um, problem is that um, very sadly, the rescue boats came out there uh, the next morning and Princess Sophia was gone. They basically, all they saw was the mast sticking up out of the water. Um, you know, it was still snowing at this time. The storm was still going on. It calmed down a little bit uh, that morning, but um, you know, all 324 had perished in the water um, you know, they, they found some different journals and whatnot that talked about, you know, things leading up to it. Um, some very, very sad stories within there. And, um, basically what it looks like it had happened 
with the storm raging, it finally, the ship got hit with a wave strong enough to knock it from the reef. And as it was scraping along that reef, it ripped a gash into uh, the hull of the ship. And at that point, they were doomed, unfortunately. So where the ghost stories come into play, this is a, a very tragic tale, where the, the ghost stories come into play on this is they, they took the bodies to Juno. Um, and you know they basically had makeshift mortuaries and, and whatnot there. And so those locations in the city of Juno that took in the bodies from, uh, from the SS Princess Sophia Sophia, I'm sorry. Some people call it Princess Sophia, um, but Princess Sophia. Um, a number of those places are haunted, and they have observed people from that that era around 1918. The apparitions down there, um, like in the basements of some of these places where uh, where they had kept the bodies, uh, they'll hear screams and and you know all sorts of things. Uh, relating to this this tragic event so um, again another another crazy one from the Alaska Triangle um, all right so William the fam has there been a Titanic sighting so like the ghost of the Titanic a, a ghostly um not that I know of I I, I haven't off the top of my head, heard of somebody seeing the uh, the apparition of the Titanic. So what what is kind of interesting when it comes to the open waters, there there is some interesting phenomena when it comes to uh, the parallaxing, especially with the night sky, and you start getting that mirage effect. Um, this is um, there's an interesting theory out there. Uh, and I think the documentary was on Netflix a few years back with, um, it was like the the last ship that saw the the Titanic and they thought everything was, was fine, everything looked good or, or what have you. Um, and that they they were at least, you know, in somewhat of a range that they could have gone to help that because of that parallaxing and mirage effect and all these different, things that happen out there on the waters that what they saw was not really the case. And um, there's a, a certain term. Um, oh, what was the term? I think it was like, um, I can't remember offhand. But basically, if you go back through the logs and look through the notes, they were ba they were making remarks about that effect was really strong that particular night. And so that could have um, led to there not being a, a quicker rescue that they couldn't have gotten out there maybe perhaps that night. And there's, um, you know, there's a, any of these, any of these tragedies that happen like this, you always get, um, you know, people that come along and say, well, you know, why couldn't they have gotten out there quicker? Why didn't they get, you know, you know, why didn't so-so get there in time? Or, you know, why didn't they whatever? And, you know, it, it's not for, you know, people just ignoring a distress call or what have you. Um, it's, there are these different things that come into play. So like with the uh, Princess Sophia, they were out there to try to help, but conditions were of such a case that anybody going to try to help would have died themselves. And so they were just waiting. They're trying to wait out a storm so that they could get the rescue boats in there to help. And just that night they were gone. So it, it's tragic. Um, So, Tom McNicholas, did you mention the schooner Jenny that was frozen with crew still aboard? Um, nope, haven't talked about that one. Um, I don't have that one in my lineup tonight. So, Tom, you have some good questions, just not stuff I'm talking about this evening. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. All right. So, but as far as ones that did freeze, um, that's the Franklin Expedition. And this one is... This one's really tragic. So the Franklin expedition with this, 
this is 1845. And what was going on with, uh, with, with the Franklin expedition? They were looking for the Northwest Patches, Passage, that elusive connection uh, basically through, through Canada to you know, the other side, to get to the Far East. You know, basically from Britain through Canada to the Far East, uh, they were they were sure that there was a easier, at least easier way um, to get through there, so they wouldn't have to um, circumnavigate the long way. They were trying to find a shortcut, and if if you look at a map and and see all the you know islands in that northern region of Canada, I mean there is a way to do it. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it, it's very treacherous. And again, we're talking about places that acquire a lot of ice. And what ended up happening with the Franklin expedition is that they did um, get iced in. And they actually uh, built these ships. They uh, fortified the holes to be able to, you know, to go through this. They... Um, uh, you know, they had several, several feet of wood. Um, I think it was eight feet thick for the hole, but then they also uh, encased that in iron. So these holes were extremely thick, and they were meant to go through the ice, but they still got stuck in the ice. And after a couple of years, you know, and, and England hadn't heard back from them, um, you know, they started, you know, sending out rescue teams. Okay, what in the world happened to these couple of ships? You know, we haven't heard one way or the other. Um, you know, we haven't heard from, you know, from them from the Far East. We haven't, you know, they haven't come back. So what happened? So they sent out rescue ships to go find these guys. And they did. They started finding some some details. And the first were a couple of graves. Um, this was on Beachy Island. This is five years after the fact, after they'd left. They found these graves on Beachy Island, and um, there were three sailors who had died during the first winter. And, you know, this was all that they had found for for several years, just some graves. So they knew they'd at least gotten this far. Now, this is just kind of like that entrance into the Northwest Passage. This isn't even that far in. Um, so... Some of the other expeditions that went out there, they started talking to the um, to the local Inuit tribes to, to see if there was, um, you know, if they had witnessed anything. And so the the Inuit, you know, were telling them, well, yeah, um, you know, we had actually, uh, you know, come across uh, some of these guys, and their their stories weren't weren't very good. You know, they, they basically talked about them, you know, uh, abandoning ship. And we'll get to that in, in just a moment. So they continue on, and they got their biggest clue in 1859 in a, oh, it looks like I didn't include the, uh, basically a stone cairn. So I, I could have swore I had it. I'm going to add this real quick. So, because the stone cairn is actually quite important. And I want to give you guys that are watching the actual image of it. So, let's get this out. And I'm sorry if those listening to the podcast are, are not going to, to see this, but um, it's, it's, it's actually still there. And, of course, now I'm not finding it, so go figure that. Ah. <sighs> Sorry, guys. So basically, the the stone cairn is um, you know a tall stone pillar, and it has a you know basically like a hollowed out area where you can put um, you know a container that will provide information. And it's not this directory; is this one? Sorry, but like I said, I wanted to show you guys. Here we go. All right. So there's the stone cairn. This is what we're looking at. So within this, they found a note from the crew. So finally, 14 years, okay, 14 years, almost 15, 
they finally get a little bit of information. And uh, what was in there was the note. And along the top, you can kind of even see the, the words. Are, they're a little bit big. You know, the first year that they were there, they, they mentioned Beachy Island, how they had sailed there, and then they sailed south, and they got stuck in the ice again. And they said, everything's fine. It's all well. But then all this scrawling text around the edges was the following year. The, uh, the cold was so bad that year that throughout the summer, the ships never dislodged from the ice. And so they were stuck there for a whole nother year. Their captain, Captain Franklin, had died as, as, as well as several others. Um, and they mention in here how they are giving up on the ships and that they're actually Baxfish River trading post. And they're going to do this in the winter. Um, yeah, that's kind of crazy. They're going to walk a thousand miles in the winter. And this is where uh, the Inuit, and when they started asking the Inuit, okay, did you see these guys? And there were some horrific stories of um, you know, how, how they would run into these guys and there would be, you know, several of them. They're carrying supplies in their little boats uh, that they'd taken off the ship, the little lifeboats. And they're dragging them through the Arctic. Um, and, you know, the Inuit would give them a little bit of meat or whatever, but they couldn't take them into their, into their uh, villages because it would just d disrupt everything and have any place for these guys. Um, and they were trying to make it to this trading post. So, uh, but they... Uh, there were stories of cannibalism, which when those stories got back to England, everybody denied it. No, these are, you know, tough sailors. They would never do that. Well, modern archaeology has found some of these camps from these guys and have discovered that, yes, they, they got to the point where there was cannibalism. In the meantime, while they're trying to make this thousand-mile trek, the ships dislodged from the ice and basically become ghost ships out on the water. Um, and for years, nobody knew whatever happened to those ships. There were stories, again, from the Inuit that, um, that one did actually get crushed in the ice and sank, but another actually was seen out on the water with smoke rising from it. They did actually... The, these the ships were kind of innovative for the time. They did actually have a heating system that was installed. So they had a little coal furnace. And they actually had some piping running through there because they knew they were going to be going through the Arctic and it was going to be very cold. And so they actually had this rigged into the ship. Well, they were seeing the ship out on the water with, this, with the smoke. So there's an idea that perhaps some of these sailors turned around and said, forget this, we're not walking 1,000 miles. Let's get back to the boat. And they made it back and actually... You know, some believe they started sailing again, and then the Inuit said, well, and then along the shore, we saw some footsteps, you know, from where we last saw the boat, there were some footsteps leading off into the cold again, so maybe they got back off the boat. Um, so eventually, they both sank, and uh, just recently here, and uh, the one was found in 2014, and the other... Um, and see, here's the, here's the uh, unfortunate souls that are trudging through the Arctic. Um, but this is the, uh, the terror. It was the Erebus and the terror were the two ships. The Erebus was the first one that they found, and uh, that was in 2014. And then the, the terror they found, uh, yeah, in 2016, a couple of years later. So of the... 105 men that set out for Back River uh, from the Stone Cairn. They have confirmed 24 remains. Um, they have found various other remains that they haven't quite been able to verify are from the Franklin expedition, but if they did, it would bring the total to 85, and there would still be 20 sailors still missing. So um, very, very sad and, and tragic. Absolutely. So... Um, go ships now at the bottom of the water. And, uh, 
airspace, didn't they resort to being cannibals? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. That they uh, they actually did have to resort to cannibalism, and that's you know when they've uncovered those remains, they have found uh, those indications uh, of uh, cannibalism. So Robert Hanna, interesting question. Mike, do you think the disappearances on these ships are like the lost colony of Roanoke? Yeah, Roanoke is really is really interesting. Um, so with uh, the American Horror Story season a few years ago where they tried to do the Roanoke thing. I thought that was going to be an interesting one, and then I ended up not liking it. They did like the whole spoof off of you know, reality television, um, and I, I didn't like where they ended up going with the actual Roanoke story itself. But it's it's a, it's a fascinating mystery as to um, you know whether – because they completely disappeared, and so – you know. You don't know if um, they've got assimilated into one of the local tribes. If they, you know, some people say they were murdered. Some people say that they, um, you know, left on their own to find a, a better place to to live. There's there's a lot of different um, ideas as to what may have happened to uh, those people at Roanoke. So we'll have to cover that one another day, though. Uh, but fascinating stuff. Um, okay, so uh, we're getting toward the end of the show here, but we do still have a few things. Um, some people want to cover the Queen Mary real quick, so we will cover the Queen Mary here real quick. <laughs> All right, so um, of course this is out in uh, California. Um, RMS Queen Mary. So it's it was bigger or is is bigger than the Titanic was, um, so it was originally a luxury cruise liner, uh, it, but it could only it was only that for a few years before World War II started. So it um, it it finished completing or it finished being completed or got its first voyage in 1936. Although they had spent six years essentially putting the thing together. Um, so, yeah, it was a luxury cruise liner for a couple of years until World War II hit. And then they uh, refurbished it to be a, uh, a, a troop transport ship. And they painted it gray. So it became known as the Gray Ghost. So um, at, at, they've counted that uh, over 800,000 troops actually were aboard this thing not all at the same time but over the course of its um its service uh 800,000 had been aboard there uh survived a couple of collisions at sea uh and it set the record at the time for the carrying the most people ever on a floating vessel which was uh more than 16 and a half thousand at that time and it did participate in the D-Day invasion so um after World War II, they put it back into service as a uh, luxury cruise liner for a while. And once it basically became deprecated because, you know, it didn't have, you know, as things like air conditioning and, and stuff like that started to become in vogue, um, Queen Mary didn't have that. So um, so basically it was, it was decommissioned. But now it serves, of course, as a... Um, Well, as a tourist spot, right? <laughs> it's a tourist spot, and of course, they have the paranormal investigations on there. Um, you know, number a number of different ghosts on here. I mean, they they claim to have up to 175 ghosts on the Queen Mary, and I'm not about to get into all of those stories because there's just um, uh, it's just too many to get into. So, Victoria, does Queen Mail sail anymore or docked forever? It's essentially docked forever. Um, it. I don't know when the last time it sailed was, but um, yeah, right now it's just it's just docked there. So, all right, that is the Queen Mary. It's it's one of those bucket list items for for me because I mean it's I guess when you're in the paranormal community for for so long, people always talk about you know as far as like haunted ships, Queen Mary is like the one. I mean, there's other ones like. Um, USS Hornet and, and some others um, that are supposed to be very, very haunted. So I will throw out there, um, of course, the, uh, the Goldenrod Showboat. 
uh, investigated this many, many times. Definitely a uh, you know haunted ship. You want to talk about somebody having a an attachment to it? Uh, the captain, Captain Minky, certainly was certainly there. It's also a place uh, where all that ferry activity was experienced. But what was really interesting to me that I got like the first time that I was ever there, and it happened every single time I was there. So this is the uh, the showroom, and if you look at the balcony on the right-hand side all the way in the back, if you follow the stairs going up, you can't see the door, but there's a door back there that leads into the dining room area, and it comes out here. This is the dining room area, and you can see back in the passage. So if you look that open doorway there, again, I apologize for those in the podcast. If you look at that open doorway there, there's a uh, service corridor that's there, and basically for the dining room that was used as a, you know, a, 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 you know like I said, service area. So, you know, um, dishes, plates, all that stuff. Uh, it brewed coffee back there, all that stuff. Um, and basically it leads out to the, uh, the balcony. Every single time through there, um, it was always dark, heavy, oppressive. Um, let's see, that is basically where you would see the, the shadow figure there um, on the goldenrod. I didn't see the shadow person every time there, but did see it in there. Uh, but every time walking through there, dark, heavy, um, hair raising, all that stuff. And it's like, what in the world's going on uh, in this particular spot? And so last time on there before it unfortunately uh, burned, um, Jake Medford's telling us that, oh, yeah, so, you know, before it was refurbished, because that whole uh, upper area there, that whole balcony area and behind it was very, very different way back in the day. If you look at some of the old historic photos, and I didn't put any here, sorry, the corridor was actually straight down the middle, and then there were two sides to it. But they had refurbished everything later on to create a dining room and a kitchen and all that stuff up there. But originally, that room where where all that stuff happens was Charlie Minky's room. And Charlie Minky was uh, uh, Bill Minky's brother, and they, they ran it together. Bill was kind of like the primary, and Charlie was the secondary, both captains, I guess. And... Charlie's the one that had the the thing going on with the girl in St. Louis, whose father worked on the ship as well. And one day when she got into an argument with her father, she ran off into the night. And the next morning she was found floating next to the boat. And so um, it was something that needed to get followed up on it's like okay now we're finally hearing and it was toward the investigation that jake said this stuff to you know, finally finding out okay this was actually charlie's room this area long ago so is he still there is this the shadow that we're experiencing there okay so let's gear our investigation more toward charlie and we you know never got the opportunity again because um because the arson fire so uh, tragic, but again, it was a uh, it was another ghost ship, so um, it was a very very cool spot. So um, from Victoria Monday, Mike, why are all the battleships haunted? We have several docked around the Gulf. Death, um, a lot of death, a lot of tragedy. Yeah, I mean you're you're talking about. Um, you know, people whose lives were cut short. So, you know, some of these spirits that are still on there may still believe that it's the war and they're still fighting and they're, you know, um, still doing battle. You know, it's it's tragic. So, yeah, you get that in any of these locations that have had, um, you know, that have seen war, that have seen battle, that have seen death like that, um, of course, you know, places that have seen murder, you see a lot of these, you know, this type of activity. And it's just, um, yeah, just, just that tragedy uh, when it comes down to it. So, yeah, a lot of your battleships, um, you know, anything, you know, that has seen that type of action, um, you're, you're probably going to have a haunting associated with it. So, um, 
yeah, you, you, <laughs> probably why places like you know, like the older parts of the world are are so haunted because they have seen thousands and thousands and thousands of years of bloodshed, and it's just all a mishmash there of, of this energy. So even if you know, even if the uh, the spirits are no longer there, the place itself retains the energy. And in in something like a battleship, you got to think if if you believe in stone tape theory. So you certainly have material there on a battleship that could retain and harness that energy. Again, we, we're not really sure what the catalyst is, but you know, very easily you have something there that could record that energy. And then when the catalyst kicks it off, you know, there you go. There you see, you know, the sailor walking down the corridor and meeting his death or whatever. It's, you know, it's terrible, but, um, you know, you see that happen at a lot of these locations like that, you know, where the, um, where the environment has just soaked in all of that energy and a lot of it's, a lot of it's residual. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not always, in fact, in a lot of these, it's, it's not going to be an intelligent haunt. I mean, that's not to say that none of these places have an intelligent haunt, you know, they, they do still have intelligent haunts, but a lot of it's going to be residual. It's just a recording of what happened, that energy transference, and then it's kicking off. So, um, all right. So, you guys got anything else? Um, okay. So, Sarah Youssef, I see you down there in the chat. Do you think that paranormal tourism perpetuates the haunting in terms of fueling energy? Well, I mean, you're, you're talking about I mean, yeah, I mean, I talk about this in several cases where, um, I mean, you're, you're basically manif you're, you're almost manifesting the, uh, you know, the activity to happen. Uh, you know, a, a common question, I use this, uh, a, a lot with, uh, with cemeteries. So I don't believe like a cemetery is inherently haunted, but I believe that you going to a cemetery and, you know, calling out to some of these people you know, making an observation about headstones or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. You know, I've, I've had it happen before where I'm just observing uh, about a, a family and, and coming to my own ideas. Okay, well, this person died here and that person died there. Oh, this must have happened. So I'm talking about them. So I'm giving them attention. And I think uh, what can happen is even though they're, you know, on the other side or, or whatever, that, they hear that that something almost kind of like tickles their ears. Hey, somebody's talking about me. Let me go check it out. And they go. So I, I think they know when, you know, somebody's visiting a location or, or what have you. Um, so that's, you know, in, in one sense there, but also, you know, the idea that if you have all these people putting energy into something to try to get something out of it, that at some point something's going to respond because there is enough that's put, been put into there that at some point something has to come back out so um so yeah so some of these i would say some of these haunted locations are getting fueled because of the attention that's getting that's being given it and so um so it manifests um all right so i, I think some people would almost try to go down like the top of thought form route but i'm not going to quite go as far as that um but I, I think we are in some degrees creating or at least calling enough attention that something is is coming out and being like hey i can get some attention over here whether it has anything to do with that location or not it could be you know a spirit walking by me like oh they're looking to talk i'll go check them out so all right all right so, all right, everybody, I think that is probably going to do it for this edition of Beyond the Shadows. Appreciate you bearing with me through um, whatever in the world that was with the technical difficulties right in the middle. I have no idea. That was bizarre. But we are here at the end of our episode. Go Ships! Appreciate it very much, everybody. And you guys had some wonderful questions, uh, which I always love to get from you guys.